Welcome to episode 15 of Shellshocked. This week, we're talking about music, including an interview with musician, songwriter, and popular podcaster George Harab. And later, we'll have a science report about the true meaning behind some of the most popular songs you never really understood. And we'll end with a good news report from Maryland about a terrific program that's using music to help those suffering from the effects of dementia. So pull out your sheet music and clear your throats, or clean out your ears if you're just going to listen. Then brace yourselves for Shell Shock. This week's topic is one of those that I think many scientists, even social scientists, would be maybe a little bit nervous broaching, and that is the effect of music. Now, this reminds me, by the way, Marilyn, I wish I could remember who said this online, but it was kind of a snarky joke that I read this week that said, isn't it amazing how music can take you to different places? For instance, I was in this club where they kept playing Madonna songs, so I went to a different place. <laughs> <laughs> That's so mean. I hope Madonna's not listening. Oh, I hope not. We, we didn't mean anything. So, you know, since it's an art form, I think music is often seen by, you know, at least the people on the ivory tower as a dalliance, a toy or a hobby, or at least not something to be taken seriously by those of us who study the, the things that matter. But the good news is there's a growing movement, especially in sociology, that's trying to change that reaction. And their research is helping to put music into a more respectable focus in the sciences. I give you, as a for instance, a sociologist in Sweden named Ugo Korte, he is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Housing Research at Uppsala University, and he's written recently about employing social movement theory to analyze the emergence, activities, and development of subcultures in small groups. And this is some really fascinating research that's being done. I'll give you an example. He talks in his writings about political and social movements being a good example of all of this and how they can be really rich areas for study. Specifically, take the punk rock movement of the early 1970s. When you think punk rock, what do you think of? A new wave music. Okay, so new okay. wave sort of came out of that, but the uh, original punk this hard-driving, Nine-inch nails, I guess. Uh, early 70s are people like the Sex Pistols. Okay. You know, right. really angry, tattooed, you know, shaven heads. And for the early 70s, this was really XTC? Was, it, would that be considered punk rock? You're so young. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll actually put up a list in the show notes, and we'll educate the listeners and you. And me. <laughs> about what the original punk rock was like okay. but it was it's a very angry uh, some might even say violent music that showcased the anger that these young people had um at you know mainstream society and their complete rejection of mainstream society and their call for things like anarchy at least in theory the really interesting thing as um corte points out is that the punk rock movement is completely the opposite now. It's completely on the other end of the spectrum. It used to espouse what we might see as uber-liberal mindset. And now, 40 years later, punk rock is largely the domain of the neo-Nazi subculture. Ooh. Who wouldn't fit in with the early punk rockers at all, I don't mm -hmm. think. 
Yeah, there's uh, um, actually that just reminds me. There's a. Ha- have you ever seen the um, movie American History X with Ed Norton? I haven't seen that yet. Oh, you must watch. Very great movie about prejudice and discrimination, and um, and uh, there th- that just reminded me. There's a they're neo Nazis. Uh, oh, and oh I see. And he's in a uh, a van singing this punk rock. Um, music about how uh, white supremacy. Great example. So, yeah. So so check it out. Corte also talks a lot about um, a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Randall Collins, and Collins um, speaks in his research to how concerts and festivals, especially, can be these really empowering interactional rituals. Uh, They provide intense face-to-face encounters that supply their members with a form of social solidarity and emotional energy that allows these movements and these subcultures to persist. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, very. Watching people at concerts, you know, I I think that would be very interesting research. Yeah. Um, And I always marvel at those people at concerts, do you know who I'm talking about, that don't move to the music? They just, just, they just stand, stand there, there, yeah, and listen. I'm like, really? Like, doesn't music just move you? <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, I don't know how they do it. There's right. a video going around. We were discussing this earlier before we were recording of a couple of cockatoos, one of whom is not moving at all, and the other <laughs> of who is just boogieing down to some Elvis music. So maybe that's true in birds as well as in humans. Yeah. They just it didn't move them at all. Well, you know, but if you're if you paid to go to this concert, you would imagine that you would have some interest in that person's music. But I guess you could be like, you know, my husband, he he sometimes goes to things with me that, you know, he has no interest in just to accompany me. So maybe that's why they were maybe that's it or maybe they're just so deep and pensive. They're really enjoying every note. I I had a professor, my one of my professors, uh, in graduate school, um, said that he didn't dance and he didn't listen to music. He thought uh, music was beneath us. Wow! Yeah, yeah, it was. It was very interesting. What a weirdo! Uh, very, very strange. <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, okay, that's because you know we were talking about this before. Every culture in the world has had music as a part yeah. of um, of their lifestyle." Yeah, as far back as as recorded history goes, there's been music. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's evidence that music existed before recorded history. So yeah, he's he's the odd man out. Very much so. Yeah, and I was also reading um, in the book Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks. Yeah. On the uh, preface, they were talking about uh, the debate whether uh, I'm sorry, what came first, music or language, and uh, you know, uh, they were there were both sides, and you know, you and I were saying that it just seems right that music might have come first. And yeah, the language I hope developed it's true. From that. Yeah, but well, there's a lot of people who would disagree with the fellow you were discussing earlier. There's, in fact, I found out through doing research for this episode that there's an entire peer-reviewed journal that's cropped up in sociology that's devoted to this area of social science. It's called Music and arts in action and they define the journal's purpose as presenting cross-disciplinary work that takes a wider holistic approach in researching the dynamic role of music and the arts in social life and cultural experience simply put 
How, when, and where do music and art do something? How do music and art matter? Wow, that's... Fascinating that there are that many people in the social sciences who are devoted to this area of study that we just kind of thought would make an interesting podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And in that vein, at Cal State uh, University, I'm actually teaching a class this fall, which is part of a cluster... And it's called The Psychology of Music and Mind. And actually, we're uh, meeting um, with the other people teaching this cluster of freshmen. And it's going to involve physics and English and all these different areas. And we're going to try to incorporate uh, music into all, you know, how does music affect all of these different areas and get freshmen um, to see you know, some kind of enveloping theme in every course that they take. I wish I could take that class. That sounds so fun and interesting. Yeah. So uh, um, hopefully um, it will be fun. I'm learning a lot. And, um, you know, uh, I found the the Library of Congress has a podcast series called uh, Music and the Brain. Oh, so I'll we'll have to be, link to that. Mm-hmm, so I've been listening, uh, or I will be listening to that. And, you know, it, it all talks about, a lot of it has to do with music therapy for mm-hmm. a lot of uh, psychological disorders and how they're used. So I have an article here that you might be interested in. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, it's by Dr. Maria Elisa Pinto Garcia, and it's entitled, Music and Reconciliation in Colombia, Opportunities and Limitations of Songs Composed by Victims. Wow. And in this peer-reviewed article, she talks about her study of the ability for music to help in the reconciliation of ex-combatants in war-torn regions of Colombia. Wow. This article is too detailed for me to go into here anyway, so I'll link to it in the show notes in case the listeners would like to download a free copy. But it just goes to show you that this topic goes much deeper than just sort of the American protest songs of the 1960s. Yeah, we're just, you know, doing the basics here, but obviously you could delve into lots of different topics with um, music. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not denigrating that genre. Actually, I talked quite a bit about that uh, topic with our guest interview this week, George Harab, who's a musician and a songwriter, and he's written a number of songs that people might consider protests against pseudoscience and religion and non-critical thinking and well, I can't wait to hear what George Rab had to say. So why don't we get t- to the interview? Okay, let's do that. We'll start it now. All right. Our guest interview this week is George Harab. George wears many hats, including performing as drummer for a nine-piece horn band called the Philadelphia Funk Authority, as well as being a singer-songwriter with six albums and a DVD under his belt, and he serves as MC and host for science conventions like the Amazing Meeting, the Australian Skeptics Convention, and QED. He's probably best known to our listeners, though, for his insanely popular podcast, Geologic, where he showcases his talents for researching science and current events, talking about skeptical worldview, and showing off his ability to create and perform numerous bizarre characters to express what I can only assume is a serious need to be medicated. George has agreed to come on the show and talk about the topic of using music to encourage positive social change. George Harab, welcome to Shellshocked. 
It's so nice to be here. Why is it taking so long for us to chat on your fantastic program? My goodness. I, I don't know. It's a major oversight. So <laughs> no, it's fine. Congratulations, by the way. I'm Thank glad you're you. doing it. Thanks. Uh, let's start out by um, asking you, how, how did you get into music? And what do you think might have led you into choosing a career entertaining people with music? Yeah, my dad was a musician on the weekends. My dad was a teacher during the week. And on the weekends, on Saturday night, he would play in his band, uh, Ukrainian Wedding Dance Band. And so he was my first teacher. I wanted to play drums. He was my first drum teacher. And I sort of did that as a, I had an affinity for it. As I got into high school, uh, having been in all the school bands, my high school band director sort of said, you know, uh, if you sort of study this a little bit more, a little bit more seriously, you can get a college to pay you to go to school. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because I had thought about being an architect or being some kind of a designer or something maybe. But uh, that involved math, which unfortunately was not my strong point. And I thought, oh, yeah, this music thing, that could work. So uh, Barry Santani, my high school director, sort of said, yeah, do this, get a scholarship somewhere. And then, you know, if you want to do the music thing, you can do it. And then it just became, it was an, an aha moment of like, oh, yeah, I can totally do this. Because it, it sort of it, it encapsulated my love of performing as well as my affinity for music and and knowledge of of drumming and and things like that so i studied uh percussion got a degree in music uh and just it sort of happened from there i've fallen into sort of uh being a professional drummer who in his spare time writes sort of silly science sometimes science-based songs and i'm sure you've been asked this a million times but how would you describe your music what is its style? It's genre. Yeah, it's 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 so you know everybody says that their stuff sounds unique. My, my my I'm a fan. What I like to do is describe what I like to listen to. So I am a huge fan of Talking Heads. I'm a huge fan of uh, King Crimson and Frank Zappa and uh, The Police. And my music is kind of a crappier version of those artists. I'm like the Kmart version of that. Is that's the best way I can describe it. I think I'm going to disagree with you on that last part, but I, I do hear those influences in your music. Yeah. Did, did you always include skeptical or science-based themes in your music, or how did that come about? It, I think it was more. It was a decision to not write love songs. Oh. I didn't want to write about topics that had been written about a million times before. I sort of have this need and, and, and almost uh, ill knack or need or desire to always try to be somewhat different and somewhat original so um i didn't want to write about themes that others had written about a lot anyway i know others there have been plenty of people that write about science but i thought all right this was something that most importantly was interesting to me so if it's some weird animal that has sort of bizarre uh, uh characteristics about it i might think oh that deserves a song you know, one of the earlier sort of really biology science songs was about this, uh, a fish called a candiru that likes to swim up the urethras of animals. You know, it senses urine in the water and it swims up your urethra. And, I, you know, I read that and I think, well, that little creature deserves a song. That's, <laughs> you know, that's how my brain works. So it's sort of like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't a question of, ooh, let me tap into an, an unused market or let me try to take advantage of the skeptical uh, conventions that are going to be happening maybe 10 years from now. It was nothing that with any kind of foresight. It was just these topics interest me and it is so uh, difficult to write music for me personally 
but to come up with stuff to write about that at least what you're writing about, if you're interested in it and excited about it, that helps the process. It helps that sort of to roll the rock uphill <laughs> as difficult as it is if you're interested in it. So science is just fascinating because my dad was, you know, my dad was not only my music teacher, my first sort of percussion teacher, but he, you know, he explained to me uh, how the seasons work using a flashlight and a globe. It's a very vivid memory of mine. Wow. You know, he, he was always describing stuff to me about stars and, and the weather and science, science principles and, and elements and things like that. So um, that was always, it always went hand in hand with kind of the music and the science and the knowledge and the seeking how things actually function. You know, I've heard you in other interviews and in private conversations talking about the legendary Frank Zappa as well and his influence on your musical career. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm one of those people whose only currency with Zappa is Moon Unit's Valley Girl. You have sure. to excuse sure. me for that. That's so okay. educate me about this Zappa guy. So, yeah, Frank, you know, Frank was kind of an iconoclast out of the late 60s. He, he flourished in the 70s. A prolific composer, just a guy who just loved to work. He just worked and worked and worked. You know, I think while he was alive, it was something like 64 albums came out under his name. Wow. Since his death, another 30 or 40 have come out. Um, there was I, I discovered him in college or right before I got to college, and there was something about his anything-goes aesthetic that if you wanted to have a funky rhythm that was okay if you wanted to incorporate some kind of Stravinsky or Shostakovich that was okay if you wanted to be dada and completely bizarre that was okay if you wanted to have hip-hop or heavy metal you could do that within the span of a single song and that was okay that opened up my sort of that made me skeptical of musical forms and is a very early influence plus he was very political um, he was a documenter of social activity so he liked to get into the trenches and record and and interview people about what their lives are actually like uh, versus kind of the vanilla time life version of what the 60s were like or what the 70s were like he liked to kind of get into the trenches and then write songs about that so plus uh, having a a phenomenal level of musicianship not only in his compositions but in the musicians he hired I mean he literally had some of the best players on the planet in his band playing some of the most difficult music technically uh, but that could also just be interesting emotionally and and funny most of all his humor and his you know he's been called sort of Mark Twain with a guitar ah. on some level in terms of his social commentary and that that to me you know as a 17 18 year old that's just so so incredibly appealing at that age um so yeah, that, that, that connected with me and then the fact that his influences then I could go discover so I could find out you know, who Stravinsky was and why did Frank like uh, Varese or why did Frank like Johnny Guitar Watson or these kind of 50s blues players as well as these classical musicians or uh, yeah, like Varese you know, who writes these bizarre you know, uh, sound constructions from the 50s and 60s. So th that to me was, yeah, Frank was really, really influential plus his work ethic was just incredible that he put an album out every three months, basically, for his entire life, which is sort of, sort of insane. Yeah, it's just insane. And you mentioned that he was political and made social commentary, and that's kind of, yeah. you know, sort of the theme of this discussion and this week's right. um, topic is, 
you know, sort of, I'd like to brainstorm with you now about a, a few people that I thought of, and I know you had a few people in mind as well, who are mm-hmm. very well-known musicians who are known for their music and their artistry, but also known for the causes they got involved with and right. the social movement part of their music. And I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Pete Seeger. Um, he's sort of the beginning point for a lot of this a huge civil rights activist spearheaded the American folk music revival and I think there's a lot of people in the 50s and 60s who instantly think of him as being kind of the musical hero of that generation sure totally I mean in sort of the legacy Seeger picks up from from uh, Guthrie mm. you know this land is your land kind of sort of taking that mantle from him and then that kind of folk explosion of the 50s uh, Seeger was amazing I mean there was a documentary made a couple of years ago about him that was just it was so incredible his whole life in upstate New York and and his relentless kind of social activism and his his idea that you know when people sing together they can't be mad at each other <laughs> it's this wow. really interesting idea of like if you he always I mean in every I never saw him live but I've seen performances you know on, on, on TV and stuff and he always included this idea of singing along and it's a really interesting idea or concept that if you're having a shared musical experience or artistic experience it's very difficult to be sort of uh, mad with each other or to find differences it 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 acts as a you know again you get kind of treacly when you start dealing with these kinds of ideas of the power of music the power of uh, a shared experience but i mean those are some of the earliest shared human experiences. You know, there's, there was the hunt, and then after the hunt, you got together in front of the fire, and you told stories and maybe sang something. Yeah. You know, that, that is such a core of the, of the sort of human experience, I think, so that when you feel, whether you're just watching two people sing together or are in a stadium of 100,000 people, you're tapping into some really ancient and very uh, uh, progenital kind of human experience and I think Seeger knew that so that he could tap in and it humanizes it humanizes the other you know someone that's different from you uh if they're singing the same song you are it's 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 really interesting so yeah he was a tremendous he was one of the first to sort of do it unapologetically too which I think is really cool yeah my favorite factoid about him is his conviction uh, for contempt of Congress after he defied the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s that's a that's a man there Totally. And like to to do that then too, you know, especially before the kind of radicalism of the 60s and 70s, to do it in the 40s and 50s, those guys are, those guys are amazing heroes. I mean, people that stood up to the uh, McCarthy sort of uh, stuff where where you, you didn't, you couldn't point to other examples of people doing that similar thing, really the trendsetting. Yeah. So for Seeger, you know, who was just a folk singer to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to testify. You know, it's it's so it's so not that he didn't testify, but just to, to sort of say I'm not going to I'm not going to play your game. It's yeah, it's really inspiring for a guy who just sort of sings, you know, simple folk tunes. It's great. It's a multi-level thing that really I, I always respect guys like that and just total a total ninja. You know, you sort of see him as this simple, you know, you know, cap wearing banjo player. And it's like, no, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's deceptive. Yeah, um, absolutely. I know that Bob Dylan was mentored by Singer, and the only other thing I know about Bob Dylan is he couldn't sing. But I <laughs> well, know that's probably open to interpretation and opinion yeah. there. But uh, what else should I know about Bob Dylan? Well, I, I, I think also Dylan is that part of that continuum, 
you know, and I, what I liked about Dylan is he's also much like, I think, Zappa kind of didn't want to necessarily repeat himself or feel uh, stuck in a trend. So, you know, when he when he pisses off his folky brethren, you know, he's a folk singer through and through. And then all of a sudden in whatever it was, I forget which year, 60, 63 or whatever it is, he, he picks up a electric guitar because yeah. he sort of says, this is the future and this is going to get my message to a broader audience um, potentially, uh, it's kind of a, yeah, I, I've, I've never been one who owns Dylan albums, uh, again, because of the sort of aesthetic and the, the timbre of his voice is, a you have to kind of be into it or not be into it. Uh, but yeah. I completely respect him in terms of, again, another guy that has just done what he does. I mean, he's, he's written music. He still writes music. Um, he's never sort of compromised himself. Um, and, you know, blown in the wind for as cliche and kind of cloying as that is to us now, 50 years later, 60 years later, hearing that song. At the time, you know, that's a very rebellious message to be like, you know what, establishment, your sort of days are done. Your days are done. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but you know, it's you guys are pretty much done. You're going to be gone soon. So, like, we're we're reveling in the fact that that the old ways are on some in some way going to be gone. That's a very that's a very curious and interesting position to take, especially that early in kind of the you know pop revolution. Yeah, you know, my only album that I own um, that has any Bob Dylan on it is not even sung, and it's not by Bob Dylan. It's actually mm. a joke CD that had. Uh, Rocket Man by William Shatner, oh, that nice, sort of yes. thing. You know, just really bad music, basically. Sometimes mm-hmm. not even music. And there was an actor named Sebastian Cabot who sure. played Mr. French on the '60s TV show Family Affair. That's right. That's right. And they had uh, like a Rolling Stone. The music was playing in the background, and he simply read it. And okay. I thought, my God, this is poetry! And it never yeah. even dawned on me Dylan was a poet. Yeah, and I'm yeah, sure yeah. everyone else around me knew that already, <laughs> but it just, it was such an explosion in my mind. And so I started just reading lyrics of Bob Dylan online sure. and I thought, this is so gorgeous. Yeah, that that's what it is. I mean, his melodic and kind of harmonic musical contents to me is very limiting or limited, um, much in the same way like a Bruce Springsteen. Like yeah. musically, I, 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 I can't connect with that stuff musically. Lyrically, however, yeah, there are incredible um, images that are, that are evoked out of their lyrics. And it is, it is, you know, in its best way, poetry set to custom music. Yeah. Uh, you know, Willie Nelson comes to mind as well. Um, he was one of the organizers very early on in the, the mid-80s, along with Neil Young and John Mellencamp, of Farm Aid, um, this effort to help family farmers in the United States. I think it's raised something like $30 million. Um, very impressive stuff. And again, not music I would choose to listen to, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Willie Nelson album probably has never been in my home. And right. yet I respect him as an artist and I respect the people who, you know, got together and used their music like that. Probably the best known example of that is the We Are the World album, right. concert, right. etc. Um, by USA for Africa, which is getting less and less impressive to young people because they don't know who Steve Perry is or <laughs> Kenny Rogers or even Cindy Lauper. So yeah. I think we're losing that. Well, it's curious. The, 80, the 80s, there, there was this thing. I mean, the, the whole kind of 80s fundraising musicians being overtly uh, interested in, in raising money for causes. 
uh, started with Band-Aid, the English yeah. sort of version of USA for Africa before. Geldof. Yep, Bob Geldof, you know, who from the Boomtown Rats, you know, the sort of the last person you would think, you know, who eventually became Sir Bob Geldof for all his work, mm. you know, gets all of his friends. He sees a news report of, of children starving, sees a news report, says this is crazy, gets all of his friends and acquaintances together to get all of their friends and acquaintances together. They record uh, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, which is still my favorite out of all the kind of fundraising songs. That one still is my favorite, I think, because... I was the I was whatever I was twelve I guess I was the right the right age to sort of have it hit me to see you know both Sting and Duran Duran and uh, 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 Boy George in the same band you know was yeah. was sort of amazing at the time as part of the MTV generation and that song had a certain earnestness to it that I thought was really cool I didn't get into I mean I, I of course bought it the We Are the World but that song seemed already more more sort of slick and produced and and treacly to me as a kid like that it wasn't as cool as the as the band-aid stuff but but then that led of course to you know amnesty international where sting and the police and peter gabriel uh put that sort of set series of concerts together there was the uh, sun city yes you know sun city was a resort in south africa that booked national artists and then a bunch of artists said you know what we're not going to play sun city and that was their that was their album that they came out with. And that also was a lot of sort of hip-hop performers at the time, early 80s hip-hop, which exposed me to, you know, I knew sort of who James Brown was, but he was he was sort of in, in, involved in that and, and got Bruce Springsteen and, and Africa Bombada and a lot of these New York and, uh, uh, and West Coast hip-hop guys. Um, and it was like, oh, okay, what, what's South Africa? What's, what's going on with that? So... Um, Bono also was involved in the Amnesty concerts, and a lot of these guys. I mean, sort of the 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 joke is, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and Sting isn't there to sing about it, does it happen? You know, (laughs) it's like they get kind of a bad rap because they're utilizing their fame and their influence to do some good, and I think people sometimes misperceive it as they're doing it to make themselves feel good, or they're doing it because they sort of. think it's a PR move or something whereas if you look at what actually has been done by someone like Bono who it's very easy to kind of crap on and make fun of because yeah it it does seem like he gets full of himself but his red campaign that he initiated Mm -hmm. you know for for AIDS uh, 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 not only awareness but for raising money for African AIDS and and uh, I mean he himself you know he used to make fun when uh, when U2 was on tour in the 90s they would jokingly call up the White House uh, when the first Bush was in office, they would sort of like jokingly call the White House, and, the, and of course the call wouldn't be accepted, and they would kind of make fun of the administration. And then he himself sort of realized, you know, maybe it's better to go in there and have an actual meeting and try to make some actual change or some actual influence. So when he would meet with the second Bush, his influence was tremendous in terms of getting billions of dollars raised uh, in funding for African uh, uh, charities and concerns. Wow. So it's sort of interesting that he himself kind of realized it's it's easy to be snarky, uh, but maybe it's more difficult and more effective to kind of come in and, and almost work with work with the devil that you might not necessarily want to on some level to get some good done. So I think people like Bono and Sting and and Peter Gabriel and Bruce Springsteen realize that they might get slagged because they're doing this kind of charity work. But then they, they, they must figure, who cares? You know, to a person whose house gets ravaged in a, in a you know, storm in Jersey, like, are they going to care 
that someone on the internet is making fun of Bruce Springsteen because he's because he raised you know he's, he's doing a concert to raise money for for what like they're not going to care or some right. child in Africa who finally who gets immunized like the kid's not going to care that that Sting is seen as being full of himself. So it, that's I think that's more of a modern or, or what's come out of maybe the '90s and the 2000s is this sort of awareness of and more of an acceptance of like it's okay to use your celebrity on some level to to, to raise awareness or to raise funds most important. So I mean th- those are the names that come to mind for me. You know Bob Marley was another one sort of in terms of that's that's older, but uh, sort of really in using his music to encapsulate a movement and educating and that's all done through music so it's it's actually it's quite it's quite fascinating sort of the power that the palatable uh um, device of music can kind of have to deliver a message uh that can be a little bit deeper than necessarily it being just a song you know even though i'm one that always espouses like your message your message songs should should be able to stand on their own without the message primarily right. if there's a message that's there as well that's great and the songs i find that are least successful in terms of being message songs are the ones that are straightforwardly obvious message songs where it's just about the message and it might also dilute the psychological and emotional impact as well i think absolutely we're just starting in psychology to understand the impact of music we got people like oliver sacks writing books like musicophilia um mm. You know, talking about oh how God. we're just starting to scratch the surface of understanding what the hell is music and where does it come from? Why is it perhaps unique to humans and why does it have this profound emotional effect on us yeah. that then can lead into things like making positive social change, changing people's minds, educating people? This may be a silly example, but Schoolhouse Rock taught me that a noun is a person, place, or thing in a way that probably a teacher would have had to spend five times as much time doing absolutely i've I've said i've said most of my european history and philosophy that i know i learned from monty python yeah and it's and it's it's true i mean it's it's you it sticks with you because it's sort of the delivery system whether it's humor whether it's music whether it's a film or some you know a novel or a poem or whatever it just sticks with you in a different way and i think it's so interesting you know, again, that sort of earliest shared human experience, you know, sh- looking at a sunset with your with your tribe and thinking, wow, that looks great. Or looking at the stars and wondering what those are or singing rudimentary songs or banging out rudimentary rhythms together. I mean, th- gosh, there's something so sort of primal in as a drummer, you know, I, I can't stand drum circles because it's mostly sort of a, a lot of like white people just being annoying. So like, I'd like the last place I want to be as a drummer is a drum circle, but the, but, but actual sort of drum circles that are, that have kind of a, uh, an understanding of their legacy and their content and where they're coming from, uh, is some of the most moving, like a shared rhythm is so, it just moves you in a way like you've never, you've never quite experienced anything else. And I think, I think these songs and these artistic experiences, shared artistic experiences tap into that. And it makes you remember. Yeah. So you remember the schoolhouse rock rules. You remember, you know, uh, whatever the philosopher song. So I can list philosophers and their general ideas of what they're about yeah. uh, in a way that's so different from just flat out reading it or having someone explain it to you. 
Well, I'm glad that you're part of my tribe, George Rob. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I'm going to link to your website, of course, and sure. link to some of your music as well to introduce people to it. Anything else you're up to that you'd like to talk about, or where can people go to learn more about what you're up to? Oh, I do. The, I know. I do my silly podcast every week, geologicpodcast.com. That's a fun little, if you need a distraction for a little bit, uh, you can go there. So we've got Geologic Podcast. We've got georgeharab.com. Yeah. Yeah, that's Great. the best place. That's the well, best place. Well, thanks so much for doing this with me. It was really fun. It was a little weird because we're friends, but it was nice. It was very nice, yeah. And again, congratulations on the show. I'm so, I'm so glad you're doing it. I, I'm, it's, they're, they're coming out so great. They're so interesting. And uh, keep doing it. I will do that. Awesome. Thanks again. The Science Report. For most of us, music plays an important role in our lives. It not only provides us with entertainment and an emotional outlet, but especially during our formative years, music allows us to connect with a generation, or even a subset of that generation, and to some degree can assist in shaping our personalities and our character later in life. As a result, many people have a favorite singer, musician, band, or genre of music that they most identify with and some of those people and their songs become extremely familiar to us. But what if I told you that the authors of those songs had a different meaning and purpose in mind than the one you've assumed all these years? This is actually the case with many of the hit songs we know and love, and with the advent of the internet, it's become easier than ever to identify them. Time permits only a short discussion of four in this science report, but you can check out the show notes for a link to others. The breakout hit Like a Virgin hit the charts in 1984, showcasing the beautiful and overtly sexual icon Madonna and making her an instant star. Her music video for the song had her dancing in an Italian gondola and writhing around in a white wedding dress. Given the meaning of her name and its strong association with one of the most famous virgins in history, it's easy to see why fans assume that the song is discussing a girl losing her virginity on her wedding night. In fact, the song's lyrics refer to nothing of the sort. It was actually written by a man named Billy Steinberg and he originally meant the song for a male performer. Years later, he explained to the Los Angeles Times, I was saying that I may not really be a virgin. I've been battered romantically and emotionally like many people, but I'm starting with a new relationship, and it just feels so good. It's healing all the wounds and making me feel like I've never done this before, because it's so much deeper and more profound than anything I've ever felt. As with Madonna's Like a Virgin, this next song wasn't even written with a female artist in mind. In fact, its message is more about a guy having fun. 
Written and first recorded in 1979 by American musician Robert Hazard, the song's lyrics refer to a young man who's attempting to explain his seemingly chaotic life with the lament, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. In other words, the protagonist is keeping late hours because he's busy taking girls out on the town, and perhaps other places, to show them the good time they demand. The song garnered little attention until five years later, when a cute and quirky ball of talent named Cindy Lauper released it in 1984 on her Grammy award-winning album She's So Unusual. Since then, the song has become a rallying cry for millions of young women who interpret it as an expression that, like the boys, they too occasionally need to blow off some steam and have a good time. The gritty sound of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA can be heard in everything from truck commercials to football games, and it's become a sort of anthem for millions who view it as a message of national pride in being an American. Given his working-class roots and outspoken activism, fans probably should have deduced that it was anything but patriotic. As Springsteen put it, Most people thought it was a patriotic song about American pride when it actually cast a shameful eye on how America treated its Vietnam veterans. Springsteen explained that the song's protagonist is, quote, isolated from the government, isolated from his family, to the point where nothing makes sense. Born in the USA is the antithesis of the American dream-chasing optimism that listeners construe the rock number as. The song captures the desperate feelings of a working-class citizen in post-Vietnam America. Perhaps the most successful and famous of any performer in this list, John Lennon, is best remembered for one of the most popular songs of the 20th century, Imagine. It was released in 1975, but only made it to number six on the UK charts that year. After his death in 1980, the haunting themes of hope, peace, and simplicity took on a different meaning for millions of grieving fans, and it reached number one in the charts, where it stayed for a solid month in the year after his death. Many non-religious and anti-religious groups pay very close attention to one stanza in the song where Lennon sings, In fact, this message is so misunderstood that an entire set of conventions known as the Imagine No Religion Conference is held each year with people such as Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, Peter Boghossian, and other devout atheists as invited speakers. But shortly after its initial release, Lennon was quick to clarify that it was not an atheist agenda, stating, If you can imagine a world at peace with no denomination of religion, not without religion, but without this my God is bigger than your God thing, then it can be true. In point of fact, John Lennon had a complicated relationship with religion, getting himself into hot water shortly after his arrival in the U.S. with the Beatles by stating that they were, quote, bigger than Jesus. In fact, he spent a good deal of time in the public eye for the next few years attempting to clarify that statement, even catering to the televangelist Jerry Falwell in a series of public correspondences, 
and announcing that he'd become a born-again Christian after watching a televised airing of Jesus of Nazareth in 1977. In the few years after that, John Lennon seemed to focus less on what he saw as organized religion, preferring a more universalist viewpoint. But regardless of the misunderstanding about the lyrics in Imagine, there's no evidence that John Lennon was an atheist or espoused atheist ideals. Of course, like any other form of art, music is open to interpretation by those who enjoy it. So although it's interesting to note the original meaning behind a song and its lyrics, most musicians would be quick to point out that it doesn't make that the real meaning. Paintings, sculptures, poems, lyrics, and all forms of art gain a good deal of their relevance and meaning from a complex interplay between their own qualities and the audiences who experience them at any given time. So go ahead and interpret your favorite songs any way you wish, but always keep in mind that other renderings might also exist, even by those who wrote them. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is the Good News. This week's story was originally reported in the news magazine Social Work Today and centers on the work of social worker Dan Cohen. Mr. Cohen is the founding executive director of Music and Memory Incorporated. He combines an extensive background in high-tech training, corporate sales, and software applications with social work, specializing in vocational rehabilitation and community service organizing. In 2006, Cohen was providing support and consultation to several nursing homes. One day, while commuting, he was listening to a radio program about the proliferation of iPods. The program motivated him to consider introducing iPods to some of his clients in the nursing homes. Reflecting on the daily experience of many nursing home residents, especially those with dementia, he recognized they rarely have privacy or enjoy individual activities during the course of their day. Nursing home activities routinely are performed with a group. This presents particular difficulty for residents with dementia who become more socially isolated as their disease progresses. Taking this into consideration, Cohen loaded an iPod with a resident's favorite music before introducing it. Though some staff suggested that listening to an iPod would lead to further isolation, the opposite happened. The iPod experience led to residents' increased socialization, broad cooperation, and even verbalization. Nursing home staff commented that the music seemed to transport some residents to a happier place, and residents with chronic pain seemed to forget their discomfort when listening to music. Staff consistently observed and documented that listening to personalized music on an iPod led to reduced agitation, improved behavior, and elevated mood for the residents. Additionally, family members and nursing home staff were encouraged by these dramatic changes. Heartened by the success, Cohen established Music and Memory. Music and Memory is a nonprofit organization that brings personalized music into the lives of the elderly or infirm through digital music technology, vastly improving quality of life. They train nursing home staff and other elder care professionals, as well as family caregivers, how to create and provide personalized playlists using iPods and related digital audio systems that enable those struggling with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other cognitive and physical challenges to reconnect with the world through music-triggered memories. 
by providing access and education, and by creating a network of music and memory certified elder care facilities, they aim to make this form of personalized therapeutic music a standard of care throughout the healthcare industry. Conchetta Tomaina, founder and director of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function in the Bronx, New York, and vice president of music therapy at Center of Light Health System, one of the largest long-term care providers in the state of New York, has researched music's relationship with the brain for more than 30 years, and her work has demonstrated how music can assist people with dementia, Parkinson's disease, and brain damage, confirming that people with dementia, even when they can't communicate verbally, can respond dramatically to music. She explains that no one experiences music just as sound. The various elements of music are processed in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, and we have found that emotional memories, such as love and affection, are very often well-preserved for patients with Alzheimer's disease. Although we are not yet able to say why conclusively, the songs that carry these strong emotional memories for the patient with Alzheimer's are the best retained. This results in a patient who can sing along with song lyrics but can't recognize a formerly familiar face. Research is underway to better understand this music memory link. Dr. Peter Janata, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Davis, has studied the medial prefrontal cortex as a brain region for music processing and memory. His work has shown activity increases in this part of the brain when playing music linked to a person's memory. The fact that the prefrontal cortex is among the last of the brain regions to atrophy may explain the ability of patients with Alzheimer's who have severe memory loss to remember songs from their distant past. In one video posted on the Music and Memory website, Dr. Oliver Sachs, Honorary Medical Advisor at the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function and a professor of neurology and psychiatry at Columbia University, states, The past which is not recoverable in any other way seems to be sort of embedded in amber, if you will, in music. Having severe dementia means one can remember very little of one's past, but one will always remember familiar songs that one has listened to and sung. The parts of the brain that respond to music are very close to the parts of the brain concerned with memory, emotion, and mood. In amnesia, whether or not in Alzheimer's, you lose your life. You have lost your past. You have lost your story. You have lost your identity to a considerable extent. You can at least get some feel of it and regain it for a little while with familiar music. People can regain a sense of identity, at least for a while. Tomaino has demonstrated how music can facilitate the return of some brain functions a person has lost. She has worked with people with neurological conditions who have experienced some revival of the timing mechanisms, word-finding ability, recognition of memory, and even short-term memory functions that have been lost. She believes music is an enriched sensory stimulus that allows for the disinhibition of some of the brain's inhibited functions. This means that a person may not have access to these brain functions independently, but the proper application of music can allow for some restoration. The Institute for Music and Neurologic Function is collaborating with Music and Memory to implement best practice personalized music activity. This collaboration, called Well-Tuned Music Players for Health, features specially developed music programs that healthcare providers can deliver to their patients using iPods and other MP3 players. It provides people who are living with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, as well as depression and anxiety, the opportunity to connect to the music they love, improve their overall health, and improve their mood. 
Cabo Health Health Center in Brooklyn, New York, has enjoyed tremendous success with this personalized music program. In 2008, Cohen met with the home's leadership and interdisciplinary teams from the various units. An individualized, personalized music policy was established. The staff was trained in the use of an iPod, and a music library was created using iTunes and CDs provided by family members. There are now more than 100 Cobble Hill residents using iPods, helping them to feel connected to their memories, their lives, and each other. A documentary called The Live Inside, a film about music and memory, was released in 2014. The film premiered in competition category of U.S. Documentary Competition Program at the 2014 Sundance Film Festival on January 18, 2014. It won the Audience Award U.S. Documentary at the festival. The documentary details Cohen's journey to improve the lives of patients with dementia through personalized music and captures the awakening that some people experience when they listen to their favorite music from the past. When a brief video segment from the documentary featuring a Cobble Hill resident named Henry reacting to music on his iPod was posted on the internet, it went viral with more than 6 million views in four days. It was also tremendously successful at raising the profile of music and memory. Watching Henry come to life in this video is astonishing and deeply moving. Although he initially appears withdrawn and unresponsive, he's even unable to recognize his daughter. With the introduction of his personalized music, he brightens and becomes animated. He moves his arms and feet as if he is dancing within the confines of his wheelchair. He remembers his favorite musician and sings the lyrics of a famous Christmas song, adding his own improvised crooning. He talks about the music and can share how he feels about it in a remarkably colorful and understandable way. The video also provides a glimpse into personalized music's impact on nursing home staff. Alternating tears and laughter, one staff member expresses how moved and joyful she feels at the tremendous changes she observes in residents. It is as if the hopelessness so often assumed with dementia is no longer an absolute principle. Anne Wyatt, culture change consultant who serves on Music and Memory's board of directors, sees iPods and similar technology as an enormous opportunity for nursing home residents. This technology is providing nursing home residents with access and the ability to interact with the wider world in a way we never thought possible, she notes. The optimism and hopefulness that Wyatt expresses is probably the most common response when people witness the transformation that personalized music can produce. But it would be wrong to suggest that all nursing home administrators and staff are immediately enthused when they learn about personalized music. Because of the financial stresses on long-term care organizations and their inherent resistance to change, it's the exceptional nursing home that will embrace new approaches to improving resident quality of life, Cohen explains. He also points out that once a home decides to introduce the iPods, the benefits usually are realized quickly, including residents who are happier and more social, deepened relationship among staff, family members, and residents, the creation of a calmer, more supportive social environment, and less staff time spent dealing with behavior management issues. Unfortunately, there is a shortage of iPods at Music and Memory. Donations of all iPods are welcome, and you can check out how at musicandmemory.org. So if you want to feel really good this weekend, check out the documentary on Netflix and donate an iPod. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News.
Well, folks, that's the show. Be sure and listen next week when we'll be talking about issues in the transgender community, including an interview with trans actress and performer Cassandra Cass. Thanks to those of you who've liked us on Facebook, subscribed on iTunes and Stitcher, and helped spread the word about the podcast. We've reached a record 1,550 Facebook fans, and the numbers keep climbing. And be sure to write to us to let us know what you like or with suggestions for segments or future topics. And until next week, you've been shell-shocked. <laughs>